0: Good morning, Crossview Church. I'm thrilled to be with you as we gather and worship God together. Coming to church and being in one another's presence before the presence of the Lord is always a good thing, and so thank you for doing that. i also I'd like to extend a welcome to those who are at Wood County Jail, watching by a live stream. We're glad you are with us as well. Well, I've been uh, preaching in this church for 13 years now. And uh, the last six of those has been as a senior pastor. And so we're getting to that spot where things will start to get recycled and different stories will get recycled and you'll say, I heard him say this before. And uh, the story that I'm going to open with today, it's such a story. I have used this before, but I believe it's one of those stories that is worth Repeating, it's worth having in our memory banks. And if this goes into the archive of Crossview Church as one of those that Dan would always say all the time, I'm really good with that. So, there you go. There were two preachers, uh, one named John Wesley and the other named George Whitfield, and they preached in what was known as the Great Awakening back in the 1700s, where thousands and thousands of people were giving their lives to Christ, and they would preach to thousands in open air places and they would come and teach and people would have uh, their hearts and lives transformed by the thousands. God was doing an amazing work through both of these men. And they agreed on the gospel of Jesus Christ. They agreed on the, the essentials of the faith. And, but they had some disagreement and some finer points of theological doctrine. Some sharp disagreements. Some disagreements even when they would sit together, they would get angry to the point where they'd have to ask each other for forgiveness as they talked. And so they had some heated arguments about deeper points of doctrine. One of these points of doctrine in particular caught the attention of a lot of people. And so the media of the day, the press of the day, would write about it in the newspapers and spread out uh, the stories about it and said, look how different George Whitfield and John Wesley are. And they had these this big, they made a big deal out of the fact that they didn't agree on everything. One time after George Whitfield got done preaching, a newspaper person came up to him and said, you know, it's very clear that you and John Wesley disagree about this thing. Is that true? And he said, yes, we do. We disagree about that. And he said, so will you see John Wesley in heaven? And George Whitfield said, no, I won't see John Wesley in heaven. And everyone was shocked. And the reporter started copying furiously. And He said, I won't see John Wesley in heaven because John Wesley will be so close, so much closer to the throne of Jesus than me that I won't even be able to see him. That's how we handle differences of minor doctrines and preferences and things in the church. We give honor and we love beyond ourselves. And that story is a perfect reflection of what Romans chapter 14, the text we're going to look at today, is all about. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Romans chapter 14 and uh, as we continue our study through the book of Romans, if you're using the Bibles here in the worship center, I'll be on page 921. God calls us to be unified as one church. However, There's a difference between unity and uniformity. And many people give that confused. Unity doesn't mean we are exactly alike on every single thing. People confuse the two. We are called to be one, to work together, to love one another, to serve together, to worship together in one church community. But we cannot deny that we are all different people. We all have different viewpoints, we have different experiences. We have different preferences. We have different ways of solving particular problems. We grew up in different homes. And we come to live in a church community with preferences and perhaps convictions that we hold, perhaps even convictions that we would hold to the death. And yet, God expects us to live in his church as a unified church family. It's a unified body. This has been a challenge for the church through the ages. This isn't something that is new. Sometimes we look at the early church and we think, man, I wish I could be there. That had to be so easy and perfect. And it was a mess. They dealt with these things as well. One church in Corinth, they said, I actually don't like that main pastor. I'm going to follow that pastor. And I'm going to... another person said, no, I'm going to follow that pastor. Another one said, no, I'm going to follow that pastor. There was another church where this guy Alexander, who was a coppersmith, opposed any leader that was doing anything in the church at all. There's another church where a guy named Diotrephes would blow off the authority of the apostles. There's a church where these two guys, Hyamaeus and Philetus, opposed Peter. There's a church in Philippi where these two ladies, Aodia and Syntyche, would fight and argue. And even the Apostle Paul had an angry disagreement with another church leader named Barnabas. If the early church struggled with these things, we will as well. And it doesn't mean disagreement is all evil. In fact, there can be good things that can come out of disagreement. But the key, as we learned last week too, is the key here. It's how we handle disagreement. Is what matters. Can we handle it with humility, patience, right perspective, grace, good communication? If we can do that, then unity can be achieved. One of the things that I love about the denomination that Crossview Church is a part of—we are part of a denomination called the Evangelical Free Church of America, or the EFCA is one of our mottos in the EFCA is this quote by a man named Rupertus Meldenius. Now, if you can quote anybody whose first name is Rupertus, you're doing good. If you have a quote by someone named Rupertus, you keep it and live by it. So, in this quote, it says, In the essentials, unity, the non-essentials, liberty, all things, charity. What he's saying here is, in the things in the Bible that are absolutely essentially clear, black and white. We see it totally clear. In those things, we will be unified and we won't ever compromise. However, there are certain things in the Bible that a case can be made for multiple viewpoints. A biblical case can be made for multiple viewpoints. God wasn't expressly clear in these issues in the scriptures. And in those issues, we call them non-essentials. It's not that they're not important, but they're non-essential to our Christian faith. In those areas, we're going to allow Christian freedom. We're going to allow liberty for Christians and churches to land in different places on those things. However, in all things, there will be love and charity. I love this about our denomination. I love this about our church. This is where we stand. Another way to look at this quote is through this Diagram. In the center, you have your core essentials. These are the things that the Bible is crystal clear on. We won't budge from these. These are the core. These are the things that we stand fully on without compromise. However, in the issues that the Bible is not totally clear on and allows for difference, we call those important non-essentials. And then we have things that may not even be so much scriptural, but they're just our personal preferences. They go on the outside of the non-essentials. But in all things, we keep love. In all things, we treat every human being as an image of God, worthy of love, dignity, and value. The issues Paul is talking about in Romans 14, which are mainly about diets and days fall into that important non-essential category, even pushing into preference. Our church and denomination has decided that we are going to focus on the core essentials when it comes to our unity. And we are going to allow there to be freedom in the important non-essentials and preferences. And we're going to not let the non-essentials and the preferences divide us. We're also going to not let the non-essentials become essentials. Because that happens all too well in church history as well. So, if you're wise, you're asking the question, or if you're inquisitive, you're asking the question, how do you know what is essential and what is non-essential? That's a fantastic question. We rely on the historic walk of the church from the time Jesus ascended to now. We look at what the church stood for and what they held as essential throughout time we see this in creeds we see this in in different writings if you want a simplified answer what do we as a church at crossview church hold as our essentials what does our denomination hold as our essentials it's 10 things that we list in what we call our statement of faith they can be found on our website those are the essentials everything else is a non-essential The ten things listed in our statement of faith, things like God is a trinity, things like the Bible is God's authoritative word, things like Jesus Christ is the only Son of God, the only way to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives inside every believer. Those things are the essential things. The rest are not. Unity in the essentials, freedom in the non-essentials are to coexist in God's church today. Our human tendency is to judge and separate on things that are non-essential. essential. That is what was happening in Rome when Paul wrote this letter, and that happens in churches all over the world today. The human tendency is to separate. Paul saw something greater. Paul had a vision for a church where Christ's love could bring together differences, could bring together people with different viewpoints, and where they could give deference to one another in love, and stay anchored in the essentials, but still enjoy fellowship and relationship with people who differ with them in the non-essentials. He had this picture that was alive in his heart of what Christ's love can do. And in the church he looked at here, the Church of Rome, as we talked about in the past, you had two different groups of people. You had Jewish people who were born and raised Jewish, who had an encounter with Jesus, and now they're Christians. And then trying to figure out how much of our Jewish heritage and culture and religion do we bring into this new religion called Christianity. And it was messy, Then you have these people who are Gentiles who weren't raised with any spiritual background. They came out of a bankrupt pagan system. They encounter Jesus Christ, have a radical transformation, brought into the church, and they're trying to figure out how do we live as Christians and yet we have these people who were raised Jewish and they want to bring in some of this Jewish law and is that okay and what do we do? And it's kind of a big mess. The Jews in Rome were known to try to out- jewish the jewish people in jerusalem with how they obeyed their jewish traditions some were vegetarians it wasn't required but they wanted to make sure they wouldn't violate food laws when now both groups become christians it would have been easy to say let's just form two different churches But Paul said, though easy, that wouldn't glorify God as much as if these two people can come together, these two groups could come together, worship God together, be unified in the essentials, and allow there to be freedom of difference in the non-essentials. He said that would glorify God and be a light to the world. And so that was his heartbeat here. And he calls the law-observing Jewish Christians weak, and he calls the liberated Gentile Christians Strong. Now, when we hear weak and strong, we hear weak, we think negative. You shouldn't think that. That's not what this is about. Think more of informed. The law observing Jewish Christians were less informed about how the gospel applies to their life than the liberated Gentile Christians. So the weak he talks about are less informed in how to apply the gospel, not so much what the gospel stands for or means. The strong were more informed in how to apply The gospel. So, in practical ways, you have a guy who is a Gentile Christian in the Church of Rome named Gus. You have a Jewish Christian in the Church of Rome named Boaz. And it's Gus's daughter's birthday. And so, Gus goes down to the market and he buys all this meat, loads it up, and says, This is going to be awesome. He says, We're going to have a party, just like Cale's son Emmett's going to have a party later today. And he says, we're going to have this meat. And they go and he brings this meat and he bumps into his friend Boaz, who's a Jewish Christian that goes to church. And Boaz is kind of shocked to see Gus with all this meat. And Gus says, Boaz, we're having a party at my house. Why don't you and your family come over? We're going to celebrate my daughter's birthday. And Boaz is taken back. And he says, you would eat that? You're not supposed to eat that. And Gus is kind of taken back and doesn't know exactly what to say. And so Boaz runs to his house and slams the door. And Gus runs to his house and slams the door. That stuff happens in churches all the time. It'd be easier to form two churches the church of the vegetarians and the church of the carnivores. But Paul says, I have a better answer. Let there be unity in the midst of difference. And he addresses three heart attitudes and gives us three action steps. So let's take a look at the three heart attitudes first. The first one is this. Accept one another. Look at Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master's servant stand or fall. And they will stand stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. The one who is labeled weak here, again, is not weak in the basic Christian faith of gospel understanding. They're weak in how to apply that to daily life. And Paul is pulling out diet restrictions as the topic of the day. The weakness is in the assurance that their faith permits them to do certain practices in real life. They are wholeheartedly to be accepted in the church with no ulterior motive to change or fix them or straighten them out. No condescending attitude to those who are weak or those who are strong. Simple, unqualified acceptance towards one another again, this happens in churches all the time. I remember when my family and I were missionaries in Portugal, and it was very common in Portugal to, at a church event, to serve port wine. It was part of their culture. They would pop a bottle of port wine and pour it. And I remember one conversation, a a Portuguese person who's a very devoted follower of Jesus said, tell me this, how come There's certain groups of Christians in the United States who said, this is a sin to drink port wine. And I said, well, the Bible is clear it's a sin to get drunk. And he said, yeah, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just drinking without getting drunk. There's many groups of Christians in the United States that don't do that. And there is, in fact, missionaries there who had the conviction not to do that. I said, this is what a Romans 14 issue The essential is don't get drunk. The non-essential is do you drink without getting drunk or do you not? And there's freedom in that. You decide what your conscience will allow you to do. And how that is affected, we're going to talk about soon. Because at the same time, though, some would say it's no problem to do that, others would say, yes, there is a problem to do that. And we have to take both into the unity of the church. And so Paul's work here cuts to the core. God is using Paul to express how he feels about these things. And all of us are guilty from time to time of looking down on someone that may not look at a non-essential the way we do. So we have to be aware and we have to accept non-essential views. Meat offered to idols is not a real issue today, but there are plenty of issues that are non-essential that fall in line with Romans 14 that can be applied in Romans 14, that can hurt the church or help the church. None of these items I'm going to list are sinful in and of themselves, but there's places in Scripture that guide us and will guide each individual according to their conscience of what they should do. We talked about one in terms of drinking. Getting drunk is very clear. It's a sin. But social drinking can be one of those that can be decided depending on where you land. On your point of view. Same with entertainment choices. Same with particular political viewpoints. Same with card playing, low level gambling, fashion, piercings, tattoos, music, how we spend our money. Then it could go into spiritual theological things. Which Bible translation is the best? Baptism. Do you do it as a child or do you do it as an adult? The age of the earth. Miraculous gifts like tongues and prophecy, are they supposed to be practiced today? The role of men and the role of women in ministry, what does that look like? People will land in different places on these because the Bible isn't totally clear on a lot of them. So we allow that to be a place of conscious and Christian freedom. We hold those loosely. The essentials of the faith we hold tightly. And we don't waver from. The non-essentials we hold loosely and say, this is where I land, but I could be wrong. Because you can make biblical arguments on every side. Now some people would say this makes the faith of Christianity weak. I think it makes it strong. Because it shows that we are not God. Here's what I mean by this. In some of the deeper theological viewpoints where there's multiple different views. It's like this. I have a a pug named Theo who's a year and a half, and I would grabbed an algebra book, and I sat down with Theo, and I tried to teach him algebra. How do you think he did? Not too well. Theo can't learn algebra because Theo doesn't have the brain matter to learn algebra. The Bible says that we can know God enough to have a relationship with him, but the Bible says we cannot know God exhaustively. If we knew God exhaustively, he would not be God. The creation will not ever be able to figure out the creator exhaustively. So there's going to be things in the Bible that we're not going to understand. There's going to be things in the Bible that make us scratch our heads and say, it says this, but it also says this. How do, how do we figure that out? How, what do we what have And we get confused. We don't know what to do with that. I think that's a place of worship. I think that's shows that he is God and we are not. It shows that he can put all this together and there's still things we're not going to figure out because if we could figure out God exhaustively, he would not be God. He'd be human. So it brings worship in these differences. The essentials we hold to, the non-essentials we give freedom And Paul says that in verses 5 and 6. Number two, accept the non-essentials. Look at verses 5 and 6. One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so for the Lord, and they give thanks for God. He said, you're going to land on different places between whether the, how the Sabbath should be kept and certain foods you should be restricted. It's all under God. The controversy over days was probably related to Sabbath. The Jewish Christians probably wanted to keep it and keep all the laws associated with it. The Gentile Christians would probably say, every day is God's day, and so let's just live. And Paul gives advice at the end of verse 5. He said, every believer is to use their reasoning and act accordingly. Meaning you take this book, you look at it, you pray, you study, you look at what other people said about this topic, and you come to a conclusion. all of us have to land somewhere in the area of non-essentials. And as a church, we land somewhere in the area of non-essentials. And we seek the scriptures and we seek um, voices who have helped in the past to help us with that. Where areas aren't clear, we do our homework and we pray and we ask God to lead us like he's led his church through the centuries. Our denomination has what's called A board of ministerial standing. It's a board that when a pastor comes, they get either licensed or they get ordained. And if they want to get licensed or ordained, they have to write a 30 to 35 page paper on our statement of faith. And then a licensing board is about an hour and a half. An ordination board is about four hours. And there's six or eight people on the board, which I serve. And the person who's getting licensed or ordained has to defend their paper and they have to go through a time where we ask them difficult questions in a good spirit. We're not trying to trip them up. We're trying to affirm them. But not only do we ask questions about doctrine to make sure they understand the gospel and the Christian doctrine clearly, but we also look for something else. It's if they take a non-essential issue, let's say like a Bible translation, and they say that King James is the only way and if they're very, very dogmatic about that, and if they say, and anyone who reads any other translation is wrong, it doesn't go well for that person in that ordination council. Because we hold in the essentials unity, in the non-essentials liberty, in all things Charity. And so what we look for is them to land somewhere in the non-essentials and to know the non-essential arguments and say, well, there's this view, this view, this view. I lean this view because this is what's more compelling to me, but I could be wrong and I give freedom to anyone who goes the other side. That's the spirit of our denomination. That's the spirit of our church. 18th century preacher Charles Spurgeon had a huge preaching ministry to the thousands in England and so did another pastor named Joseph Parker and they were good friends they had the two biggest churches in town and they were very godly men one day Joseph Parker went to a play that had profanity in it and it started to spread all around the city charles spurgeon talked about it said he heard that happened joseph parker started letting people in on a secret that charles spurgeon smoked cigars That started spreading around. Charles Spurgeon said, I smoked cigars in moderation, meaning I never smoke more than two at a time. (laughs) Glad to see you're with me. I'm just checking. (laughs) They were once close friends. This argument split their relationship because it went public and it got nasty. Who was right? Perhaps neither. Perhaps both. Both. Maybe a better place or a better question is, could both disagree and both be in the will of God at the same time? We have to land in different places and non-essentials perhaps, but we give freedom, love, and respect when we do. And the implicit is true as well. If God convicts you personally on something that's a non-essential that is wrong for you, then don't do it. Do not violate your conscience, even if other Christians are participating in that non-essential. But don't judge them either. Hold it as your personal conviction. Number three, accept the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. Look at verses 7 to 12. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves before God. The lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives must be the key. As believers in Jesus, we all live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are disciples. We are followers of Jesus. So all of our opinions are subjected to the Lord Jesus. We really don't have personal opinions, if you're a Christian, because you submit those to the Lord Jesus. And in this section, Paul talks about weak and strong, but he also, just as much, uses the term brother and sister, identifying a family. There's a unity here, but there's also a unity to the level of family. We don't destroy family members over differences of opinion. One day we will all stand before God and give an account of how we handled our differences and how we handled our preferences and how we handled our opinions. There is a sin that's blown off in churches, especially in the churches in the United States. It's the sin of disunity. Jesus prayed that his church would be unified. And we don't think disunity is that big of a deal. It's something that should be repented of and guarded against. We must acknowledge and be aware that we stay unified on the essentials and we offer freedom in the non-essentials. And in, in all things, we stay united in Christ and we love one another. I mentioned I was here 13 years. I've seen over the past 13 years, not a ton of times, but maybe a half dozen times or so, there's a person or a couple that will come into a church and they go to church to church to church in town with their particular non-essential in demand. And they place that non-essential in the church they're in and say, you have to do it like this. And if we say, we don't do it like that, we do it like this. Then they leave and they badmouth that church throughout town and they go to the next church. They're going to answer to God for such behavior. It causes disunity. I had a person once who was doing this They weren't a part of our church. They just visited the first time. They came up. The very first thing they asked me is, what do I think and where do I land on this non-essential issue? And they told me they're going to every church in town and asking this question to the pastor. I said, stop that. You're destroying something precious. Unity in the body of Christ. There's so much more you can do with your time and effort and thought than that. We live under the lordship of Jesus. We unify around the gospel essentials of the faith. There's room in Jesus Christ's church for non-essential issues. There's room in Jesus Christ's church for those who watch Netflix and those who don't. There's room in Jesus Christ's church for those who drink without getting drunk and those who abstain. There's room in Jesus Christ's church for multiple Bible translations. We need to be careful and wise about where we draw the lines. And show kindness and love to those that we disagree with. As a church in this world, we are a prophetic voice. We are declaring something to the world, whether we know it or not. And what will our message be? Will our message be godly? Will it be love and truth and grace? Or will it be something that causes the world to distance themselves even further from Jesus Christ? How better to display the light and love of Jesus in our current culture in the United States than show how a group of people can have differences and still love one another. Wouldn't that be amazing? People will look at that and say, wow, I want that. That's what Paul's trying to get at here. And so now he turns to the practical action steps of getting there. Number one, make sure your freedom doesn't cause others to stumble. Look at verses 13 to 15. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced and fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it's unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Don't by your own eating destroy someone whom Christ died. What he's saying here is in this book, in the Bible, I can tell you eating that thing is not a sin. It's not wrong. You can eat that thing. But if that person feels like it does affect them in a way that causes them to sin, then don't eat it. Even taking what is true and right, you can pause that out of love and deference to the other. That's the ethic of love he's holding up here for us. Don't take your Christian freedom and destroy the conscience of another believer. Paul is asking all of us to commit to never live in a way that would cause another one to violate their own conscience. We must all do what we can to live in ways that does not cause others to stumble. So if you drink without getting drunk and your fellow Christians are recovering alcoholic, you should opt not to drink in their presence. That's an act of love. You could say, well, the Bible says I have every right to have a social drink. Yes, that's right, but this is an act of love. It doesn't mean you have to. You have this tension. There's a tension of Christian freedom and things that we are free to do according to Scriptures and love for one another. And Paul is saying this tension will never go away while we live on earth. This tension will never be solved. We have to hold both in tension. Our Christian freedom and our love for one another. And we have to figure out and stumble our way through how we live that out today. And that's imperfectly done. It requires grace. It requires love. It requires thinking the best about one another, not thinking the worst about one another. Paul is saying here, yes, you have Christian liberty in these matters, but be careful. Make sure you can apply Christian self-restraint so your brothers and sisters in Christ are not encouraged to go against their own conscience. Number two, he says, live as kingdom of the citizens of heaven. Live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Look at verses 16 and 18. Therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Here Paul lifts the entire discussion to a higher perspective. Instead of arguing the externals and this, that, that, he goes right to the heart and he says, Jesus is transforming us by his grace. He brings us into a family called the family of God where one day we will not deal with such practices. One day we won't have to worry about all these decisions. Instead, we will completely live under the completed rule and reign of Jesus where it'll be righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let that be your focus. Let that day be what you put before you. The kingdom of God is not operating in our lives. The kingdom of God is not ruling in our lives if we're willing to separate and tear down Christians who we disagree with in an area of non-essential. We keep the essentials first and we allow freedom in the non-essentials. And above all things, we love and we seek first the kingdom of God. Finally, number three, as much as it's on you, live unified with a clear conscience. Look at 19 to 21. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink or wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. We exercise our Christian freedom, but we have to ask ourselves, in doing this, though I'm free to do this thing, am I building others up? Especially those who are newer to the faith. One commentator, Kent Hughes, said this. If you take verse 21, look at verse 21. It says, it is better not to eat meat or drink or do anything else. He said, change better to the word beautiful. It is beautiful not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. It's beautiful because beautiful means love is present. It's beautiful because it means love is extended and put into that place. It's beautiful because it means there's no arrogance there, but humility It's beautiful because it's unselfish when someone says, I have this right according to Scripture, but I know that would hurt that person, so I'm not going to do it. It's a beautiful thing. We must all walk at the speed of the newest child of God, giving up our rights at times for Christian freedom. Look at verse 22. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Paul is saying if what you believe about the neutral things is between you and God, keep it that way and preserve the unity. Furthermore, live in a way that does not cause any Christian to question their faith or hurt their conscience. That preacher I talked about, Charles Spurgeon, at the very height of his popularity. Everybody in England knew who he was. People around the world knew who he was. He was a famous, famous preacher. And he was walking down the road of London one afternoon. And as he's walking, he saw this kind of carousing event happening outside the shop. There were people drinking, and there were drunk people, and they were smoking. And, and he walked up and he saw they were outside a shop that sold cigars. And he looked in the window and he saw this sign. And the sign said, we sell the cigars that Charles Haddon Spurgeon smokes. And he saw everything that was going on outside the store. He was convicted to the core. He said he made a decision right then and there to never smoke another cigar. Spurgeon saw that what was a freedom for him caused other people to stumble into things that would destroy their lives. And he decided he wanted to live in a way that would never disgrace Jesus and would help people move as close to the throne as they possibly could live. Even if it meant giving up something that he was freely able and allowed to do. That's love. That's the way God wants us to live. To display unity in the midst of difference, that captures the teaching of Jesus And it catches the eye of the divided and dying world and makes them say, I want that. And when we live that way, we live closer to what Jesus talked about when he said that they will know you are Christians by your love. Let's pray. Jesus, we need your help in these matters. We get so married to our preferences and our opinions. And we live in a culture that screams that we should. We get in a culture that screams and tells us all about our rights. Tells us that we have the right to hold an opinion higher than anything else. God, it's so easy to slip into thinking that's contrary to your word and your kingdom and your ways. And so we ask for your forgiveness where we've done that. And we ask that you help us and give us grace to live in a manner that would glorify you. Where we hold on to the essentials of the faith with a tight grip and we never let go and never compromise. But in the other areas, help us to live in this Churches, people who have freedom, but who would gladly give up that freedom for the sake of love. We ask that you allow that to happen in our lives and our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.